Good morning. How you doing? My name is John Chambers. Um, if you're around here for a little while, you hear people call me Fud. Um, my parents didn't actually name me that. <clears throat> my, my, they love me. Uh, what happened was uh, I had gone to USC for a little while, University of South Carolina, and I transferred. And when I transferred uh, down to Charleston Southern, my friends that I, I knew there only called me Fud. And so they introduced me as Fud to everybody, and including my wife. And so after we started dating, about a month later, she goes, what is your name? Um, which is always strange. Um, I was like, it's John. She goes, I'm not calling you that. So she calls me Fud, and now everywhere we move, she just tells everybody to call me Fud. And so it's not Fred, which is most people think, but it's Fud, which like after Elmer Fudd, and that's enough of that. So um, anyway, we, uh, we are, and I know it's just ridiculously hot. I know. I, I wish I could do something about it, but I do have water, lukewarm, kind of on the verge of hot water. So um, I'm not really much better off than y'all, and these lights make it a thousand more degrees. But anyway, so today we are uh, going to be, as it said, doing continuing in our doctrine series. So uh, about four or five, six weeks ago, we started a series on doctrine. Basically, we have been preaching through the, Ma- the book of Matthew for, I don't know, like two years. We were on like chapter or sermon 80, something around there. Um, and as we got to the end of chapter 25 and we looked at chapter 26 and 27 and 28, we realized, hey, it's summer. We shouldn't do that. We should pick this up and move it over to Easter and set down 28.1 right there at Easter because the resurrection would be a great time to do um, that sermon for Easter. So we kind of worked our way back and realized that we'll have to start chapter 26 around February. And then we looked at the fall and like, what should we do? And said, let's do a doctrine series. We've never done that before. We've always just preached through books of the Bible. This ought to be fun. And so over the last couple months or so, we've been going through different doctrines um, and then today um, and next week together, my goal is to, my goal, well, I should say was to preach the doctrine of salvation, which seems very large and it, and it is. Um, the, the idea of salvation, um, being saved, which maybe you've heard before if you spent any time in church, um, is generally thought of in kind of four little parts or sections, if you will. Uh, the first one is regeneration. This is just whenever we're going to talk about today. The Holy Spirit kind of awakens you to who Christ is and gives you an understanding of what Christ has done on the cross. And then after that, it's called justification. This is the moment that you believe in Jesus, however you've been raised and whatever terminology you've used. And that's the, that's the idea of God saying, you're now completely righteous. God is calling you forgiven and calling you righteous and holy and all those things that happens. And then after that, <clears throat> from that moment until you kind of die, not kind of, but actually die, um, th- there's a process if you've been a Christian for a while where you know you grow in holiness, you become more like Jesus, um, you start uh, pushing away sins that you don't want to do anymore and you start you know, wanting to do the things Christ does. That process is called sanctification. And then at the very end... Um, Whenever you go to heaven and then you are not going to sin anymore, it's called glorification. And it's not that you're going to receive glory. Heaven's about Jesus receiving glory. But your body is, is changed in that, um, you know, for the better. You don't have gray hair and all that stuff. But you, maybe you have hair, but whatever. Um, or you finally have the hair off your back, whatever. So like, but the main point is when, when Jesus... Um, when Jesus went into, after he was resurrected, you know, he had this resurrected body that he kind of walked around on earth a little bit. Our bodies will be made kind of like that. Um, and when we're going to heaven and we'll sin no more. And so that, that's called glorification. And so my goal was to take those four concepts to do regeneration and justification this week. And then sanctification and glorification next week. 
which is way too lofty for me. I should have known that there's no way. So today, we're only going to do regeneration, and I don't even know what I'm going to do next week now, because I'm not going to do all three in one. There's no way. But we'll, we'll do something next week, and then after that, we'll do the doctrine of the church. But today, we're just going to do that first one that I talked about, which is called regeneration. Um, another way that you've probably heard that term used is called being born again. Um, if you've been in church and if somebody say they're born again Christian, that's the same idea as regeneration. So if you have a Bible, you can, you can uh, open it up to John chapter 3. That's the fourth book of the New Testament. Um, the New Testament is kind of the second half of the book of, of the Bible. If you're unfamiliar with where that is, if you don't have one, you can reach underneath you and grab. Uh, there should be a Bible at your feet. You can take that one. That's our gift to you. Take it home with you. If you already have a Bible and you know somebody that wants one, take that and give that to them. We have, we have plenty of those. So please take them. Uh, we're going to be, as I said, in John chapter 3. We'll start right there at verse 1 today. Um, I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you so much for um, the glorious gift we have to be able to gather together as a church body. Um, I do pray, Lord, just as a small thing. We know that it's kind of warm in here. um, And I pray that that won't be a distraction for us all, that we will, though we may be warm, um, you give us an ability to focus on your word today. We know that anytime we look at your word, that you're speaking, and that it's not me speaking, that you're speaking. And I pray that you would help me move out of the way and you would focus our hearts and focus our minds on what you want to say today. Um, and Lord, in, in a sermon on regeneration, I certainly pray for that. I pray that this morning you would bring regeneration, that someone's eyes would be open to the truth and the beauty of what Christ has done, and that you would save, some, save them this morning, and that they would come to know Jesus and forever be a part of his kingdom. Be with me, Lord, and give me clarity of mind. Fill me with the spirit as I talk. And I pray that these words that I say would not just be things that I know and are reciting, but Lord, that they would strike deep into my own heart and that anything I say would be an overflow of affections for Christ to all of us. We love you, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we won't, be, which we're not in today, but I want to reference it just for um, to get us all in the same place. Paul is writing, and in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, he talks about the gospel. He opens up by saying, "Brothers," so he's writing to Christians. He says, "I want you to know what the gospel is." So as we read even that very first line, we realize that the gospel is not something that uh, the beginners are so that are maybe new in church or the non Christians kind of come to understand the gospel. And once that happens, they move on to new things. But instead, it's something that they stay at. John Stott is kind of um, been quoted in his book called The Cross of Christ by saying that when you come to the cross of Christ, or you can just say to a knowledge of what the gospel is, is something that you stay at and you never leave. You constantly stay at the cross, you stay at the gospel, and remind yourselves the truths of the gospel over and over. Once you come to it, no matter how long you've been in church, no matter how long you've been a Christian, you don't graduate from the gospel and move on to more spiritual things. Instead, the gospel is everything, and you never, ever leave the gospel. You can't move past it. And so Paul... Um, employing that same idea right here in 1 Corinthians 15 is going to tell us what the gospel is. Now, Paul's view or understanding, or as he describes the gospel here, is a very historic understanding of it. It's not, you know, my heart felt fluttered and I had these things and all of a sudden I was crying a lot and it was whatever. He, He goes straight to the historic view of what the work of Jesus was. And you can see it right here in verse 
1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, in which you received, in which you stand. So we receive or trust, we believe in that, and then after that, we stand. We don't just say, I can do it. I believe that, now I can go do whatever I want. Instead, Paul says, believing in the gospel means once you do that, you stand. And he says, if you do that, it's by which you are being saved. That gives us an understanding of the whole process of salvation. Once we're glorified, then we're saved. But we also say, hey, you need to get saved. You need to trust Christ now. And that's really justification. But it's, it's okay to use that language. The, the Bible certainly does it. And then he said, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. So there's a certain understanding that there must be perseverance in the life of the Christian if they're to come to know Christ and believe in the gospel, unless you believed in vain. And here it is. Paul is going to tell us what the gospel is. If you've ever wondered what the gospel, which gospel just means good news, good news about what? Good news about how to be um, forever saved by Jesus. And it says right here, for I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. The historic understanding of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross according to the scriptures. He says that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried. So not only did he die, that he was put down in the tomb for three days and that on the, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So when someone wants to say, what's the gospel? Paul's understanding is a very historic understanding that Christ Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried, and that he was raised three days later. That's very important for us as we go into this particular text. Because in John chapter 3, this is all before any of that happens. Um, He's going to have a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So this is very early on in Jesus' public ministry. He was... You know, when he was born, he lived and swung a hammer for about 30 years as a carpenter with his dad. And at age 30, he started his public ministry. And then from about age 30 to 33, he did his public ministry for three years. And then he was crucified at age 33. And so we are right there in the beginning parts of his public ministry. Right when he begins, we're just kind of coming off the the heels of John chapter 2 where he had just turned water into wine at a wedding. They'd been at the wedding a long time. His mom came and asked him to do it. He's like, Mom, all right, I'll do it. No, he didn't do that. But he, so he turned the water into wine. He made it awesome. And everybody's like, this is amazing wine. And then after that, um, he goes into this next town. And he has a visitor from a guy named Nicodemus. So you can look right here at verse, th- verse 1. And we're going to see <clears throat> where we're going to pick up here. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees. Pharisees just means a religious group at the time that were really, really, really into rules. They thought if I follow all the rules and I keep all the rules, then God's really pleased with me. If you're like me, which I hate rules, then you can say, well, I don't understand that at all. Those rule followers, we don't understand you. But these guys thought if I keep all the rules and I just keep keeping all the rules and they really believed I have kept all 600 rules of God. I know that I've kept them all. So they honestly thought that they were earning some kind of right standing with God because they were good rule followers. Nicodemus was one of these guys. Um, We know that that's impossible. But these guys really thought that they were doing that. Named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So he was high up in this Jewish religious group. And it says, this man came to Jesus by night. So every time I read this, because I'm a product of the 80s, I, uh, you know, I think about Alf and Karate Kid and Thundercats and the Flux Capacitor and Teen Wolf and Miami Vice with Crockett and Tubbs. But every time I see this, it always takes me back to the Nick at night as well because this Nicodemus coming at nighttime. So if I, have those, if I have those 80 references where I say Nick at night, it's just, I can't help it, product of 80s. Um, but there was a lot of cool stuff in the 80s. Um, back to this. So Nicodemus comes to him at nighttime. So there's some questions here about why would he come at nighttime? Some commentators are kind of 
throwing out two different ideas, and I think they're both probably right. First of all, since he's a ruler in the Jews, he's a little bit scared to be seen with Jesus. Already, Jesus is kind of known as, you know, the, the rebel, the one who's causing some problems, the one who's doing some different things. It's not the same stuff. And so if I go to him during the day, everybody's going to see me, and I certainly don't want to be known as being seen with Jesus. And so I'm going to come to him at night. But also, there's an element of pride as well. He, he's still unsure. He thinks that the rule following is right. He doesn't want to be... Um, cast out. And so he's got an element of pride as well, where he's trying to maintain that. So um, he's going to come to him and they're going to talk about being born again, which is regeneration. So um, let me give us a little bit of groundwork on what regeneration means, and then we'll, we'll keep going. So um, a couple really smart guys that are theologians, they define regeneration or being born again like this. Wayne Grudem, he says that it's a secret act of God. Now, secret doesn't mean, shh, you can't tell anybody. It just means, like, when it happens to you, you're kind of not aware that it just happened to you. That's all it means. A secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us, sometimes called being born again. Um, it is an instantaneous event, and it results of their generation are. So if this happens, if you've been born again, if you're wondering, if, I wonder if this happens, these are the things that follow someone who's been regenerated, someone who's been born again. It says a love for God, a love for his word, turning from sin, and a love for his church. It doesn't say that happens perfectly in your heart, but certainly those things start happening in your heart. J.I. Packer, um, another really smart guy, he says the concept of regeneration is of God renovating the heart. So you just think of Ty and they comes to your house and he sends you off for vacation for a week and he's not letting you be there. And, you know, you go to Disney World, but God comes in there and he renovates your heart. He totally makes it brand new. Everything's unbelievably nice in your heart. In other words, he says he renovates the heart, which is the core of a person's being. This, this is so good. I love the way Packer says this by implanting a new principle of desire. There's new affections and desires in my heart that I, I don't know where they came from. I'd never have wanted to know who Jesus is, not sin, help other people. Where are these things coming from? This is the Holy Spirit regenerating you, implanting in you a new principle of desire, a new purpose, a new action, a dispositional dynamic that finds expression in positive response to the gospel. So when I've heard about this death, burial, and resurrection, the only one thing I want to do is act positively towards that thing that I've just heard. He said, regeneration is entirely of the work of the Holy Spirit, which we'll see when we get to verse 8. It is a transition from spiritual death to spiritual life. It is a conscious, intentional, active faith in Christ, and it's immediate fruit, and it's the immediate fruit of being regenerated. It's not the cause. It's not like you're... Um, you put your faith in God and then you're regenerated. He's saying that you're regenerated and then you put your faith in God. Although theologically we would say those things just happen simultaneously. But in the order we would say you're regenerated then faith. But we would never say like you're regenerated and then like four months later you're still pondering it. You're maybe you're shooting out some emails. You're trying to figure it out. You're reading the re Twitter feed of regeneration. You're like, I don't know. They're making some good points. Okay, finally I'll put my faith. It's not like that. It's, <laughs> it's like as soon as you're regenerated faith. And so... That's the way it happens. Now, we're going to look here um, that there's going to be a conversation here between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Jesus is going to explain, do some very early teaching. Remember, this is very early in his ministry about what regeneration or being born again is. We can see it. Um, he came to him at night and he said, Rabbi, 
That just means teacher. I'm in the middle of verse 2. We know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless um, God is with him. He's referring to that sign he's just done in in the wedding at Cana. Verse 3, he says, Jesus answered him. So he didn't really ask a question. Um, He's just saying, I know that you're a man of God, but Jesus says, I really know what you're trying to get at. So let me answer your question. And then I want you to try to do this. Try to do this. Um, Try to hear this like Nicodemus. In other words, you're not ready. You've probably heard the words born again, blah, blah, blah. Try to hear it like Nicodemus for the first time. He's hearing it as physical birth. He looks at him, and this is all the concepts and categories that Nicodemus has is physical birth. And Jesus looks at him and he says, okay, yes, I'm from God. If you want to be born again, he goes, I say to you, truly, truly, anytime you see truly, truly in the Greek, that double is for emphasis. So really pay attention to what's coming next. There's going to be three of those in this particular text. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, think about how Nicodemus hears this. He only knows being born physically. And he looks at him and he says, unless you're born again, you will never go to heaven. And so he's like, born again? I mean, how does that work? I'm a grown man. And my mom, she might even be alive anymore. And so how am I supposed to enter into my mother's womb again? And literally, that doesn't, Jesus, I don't understand. So he's, he's just blown away by this idea of how that's supposed to work. And so we know that because verse 4, it says, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And so Jesus automatically starts with some very confusing things for Nicodemus. Um, He's not making it easy for him. He's, I think, somewhat making it confusing for him, maybe intentionally. I don't think Jesus is like, you know, one of those kind of sadistic, like mess with you kind of people. But he is making it difficult first at the beginning because he wants to do a really good, comprehensive understanding of what it means to be born again. So he looks right at him and he tells him that you, you must be born again or regenerated or you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. So for us, as we're looking at this teaching, there's a kind of a, a, a first thing that we need to take note of that bubbles up to the surface about regeneration. And it, it's right here on the screen from verse 3. It says that regeneration is essential for salvation. Salvation, entering into the kingdom of heaven, seeing Jesus, going to heaven, however you want to say it. But we see from this that regeneration is absolutely essential. If you're not born again, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So he wants them to understand that it's absolutely important that you must have this. So the question that we have then is, well, how do I do that? How does that happen? I want that. I don't want to go to hell. So how can I do that? Well, he's going to continue to teach a little bit more. Uh, It says in verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again? How can this happen? How do I enter a second time? And Jesus answered, truly, truly. Again, pay attention to what's coming next. I say to you, unless one is born, um, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he's trying to make it so it's not so confusing to Nicodemus, but a little bit more clear. So let's let's key in on those. There's two key words there in verse five that are important. He says that one that is born of water and a spirit. Now, some commentators, as they look at this, they say, OK, that makes sense. Water and spirit. So he's talking about. Of water, which is our first kind of physical birth. So first that has to happen. And then after that, the spiritual birth has to happen. So first, you know, we can't, you know, just be born spiritually and that's it. We all have to be born regular. And then after that, we have to be born spiritually. And if it happens, obviously, in that order, then then we can be saved. Um, 
But some other commentators disagree, and I'm on the other side. I think that actually, instead of it being physical birth and spiritual birth, I think that what Jesus is saying is that all this is actually together in one thing. So the the reason why he's bringing up water is the same kind of connection that we make when it comes to baptism. So if you've ever seen someone get baptized, or you know what that means, they, they take them, and they put them down in the water, and after they've been down on there, they hold them, they bring, they, no, hold them down there, they bring them back up. Um, I don't know what just happened. Um, so anyway, so the point is that whenever that happens, we don't think to ourselves, oh, the physical water just cleansed their soul. That's not what we think. But instead, it's all symbolic. What's happened is before, they've trusted Christ, they've put their faith in Christ, and they've been forgiven, and... Whenever they go down in the water, it's symbolic of what's already happened. And the water is just all symbolic. So they're saying, I've gone down into the water and I'm counting that as my death. That's my spiritual death. I no longer want to be that man. And the water is symbolically cleansing me and making me pure. And that's, that's what's showing here because that's already happened because of faith. We know baptism doesn't save. And then as I'm coming up now, I'm coming up as the new man in Christ. And so this coming up out of the water is me rising up as I've been saved and saying, I'm a new man or a new one woman in Christ. That's what's happening in baptism. And here he's saying that's exactly what's happened when you're regenerated, that you're you're born of water and spirit. You've been cleansed pure and the Holy Spirit has done all this work in you. So the second note on regeneration is coming clear to us again. So the first one was it's absolutely essential for salvation. The second thing is if regeneration happens, when regeneration happens, one of the things that is declared of you, one of the things that happens to you is this. And um, I realized in first service, this is horribly grammatically incorrect, but I, I'm, you know, I'm on the low side of the, of the English side. So regeneration's effects are a heart being made pure. Maybe it's right. I don't know. But if you're an English major, you can let me know later. Not now. Regeneration's effects are a heart being made, made pure. One of regeneration's effects. I don't know. Whatever. Um, so what happened is... That if you have been regenerated, you know that you're saved, but something else has happened. That's kind of off in the future that's going to happen one day. But something's true right now. You have been given a pure heart right now. You you know, just like I do, the sins that you did last week, last month, 10 years ago, and the guilt and the plaguing fear and you just, you know, as as uh, Stephen read earlier, we talked about... um, the fact that since we're sinners, we know that we're, we're dirty or whatever the, the words are to kind of describe how you feel before you come to know Christ. You know that of the, of the sin that you've committed. And this is not just true of one day you'll be in heaven. But right now, if regeneration happens, instantly God looks at you and says, you're pure. I have washed you clean. You are now going to have new affections for Christ. And all those sins that you've done and will do are not counted against you. What Christ sees is purity, righteousness, holiness. And you just think, that's just not me. That's amazing. I can't get over it. I have a change of heart. The conviction of sin comes. I want to repent. I want to confess sin. But what's true of me above all those things is God sees me as pure. He has now not just declared me righteous, but literally washed me clean as well. I mean, that's just astounding news. And so when we hear that, we say, okay, you go to heaven, you see Christ, you get new affections, you're completely washed clean and you're counted righteous 
I want that. I, I really do want to be born again. I, I can't think of anybody that would say, no, don't sign me up for that. I want, I want something else. I want, you know, sin and terror and horror and mayhem, and I want that instead. I mean, when we hear and we've truly understood the gospel, that's what we want. And so we say, well, then how can I do that? How does that happen? I mean, is there a certain like place out? I got to stand and like, all right, God, hit me from wherever it's coming from. I'm kind of out here. Like, how does regeneration happen? Is there a special place to be? And it happens on Tuesdays at eight at the street. I mean, I know it's kind of ridiculous, but we want to know. And Jesus is going to help us understand. Now, it's going to, ri- it's going to bring up a question that you're going to have. And I know well, we're going to address that. But I think there's a better question after that first question that we're all going to have. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 6. And so Jesus explains what he said a little bit more about regeneration. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So if you've been born of the flesh, you're still in the flesh. You're still a sinner. But if you've been born of the spirit, you are now saved or whatever you want to say. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't think that's crazy. I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about spiritual birth. And then verse 8 is where he's going to explain to us how it happens. So um, the New Testament, most of it, is written in Greek, and in Koine Greek, not modern Greek, but Koine Greek, which is kind of the first century version of Greek. Um, very kind of amazingly uh, intellectual, intelligent language that it was written in. And if you're reading in the Greek and you come across this word panuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, panuma, um, but in Greek letters, when you come across it, uh, whenever you are reading in that, depending on the sentence you're reading, if you're reading and the panuma blew and the trees shook, then you would say, okay, that's panuma. And the, the wind blew and the trees shook. And we know that you're supposed to translate it wind. But also the word panuma, when you're reading, can also be, and the holy panuma, so like it can be also be translated spirit. Panuma can be translated depending on the context, wind or spirit. And it's just, whenever you're reading, you don't know. You, well, you do know according to the context. But if you just pull it up, you're like, I, I mean, is it wind or spirit? I don't know. It can be either one legitimately, either one. It can also just be lowercase s spirit. Like we have a spirit in us that helps us, um, that convicts our conscience, etc. We have the Holy Spirit and we have a spirit inside of us and we have the wind. And according to the context, all those three are panuma and it just, we don't know. But when you read it, you do know. So here's the interesting thing. John wrote this maybe 90 years later or so, maybe uh, 60 years later after this happened. He just had an incredible memory. He was carried along by the Spirit as he wrote. But Jesus knows. I mean, he's, he's Jesus. Like, Jesus is also God. He's also uh, very smart, to say the, the, the easiest way. So he knows one day John's going to write this. And so as John's going to write this, Jesus is going to use um, an analogy from nature to help Nicodemus understand how regeneration happens. And so in verse 8, he takes this nature analogy and he compares wind and the spirit, which both of those are the same Greek word, and he tells us this is how regeneration happens. Look at verse 8. Don't marvel that you have to be born again. Look at this. The panuma wind blows where it wishes. So when the wind blows, we we don't see the wind. I mean, it's impossible to see the wind. The only thing you can see are the effects of the wind. Whenever it hits the trees and all the leaves shake and fall, you see leaves falling, but you can't like see wind. 
Um, unless Superman's blowing in, in that, and you can really actually, but anyway. Um, so the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. So you can hear it, and you can see the effects of the wind, but you can't see it. The panuma blows where it wishes, but you cannot hear its sound, but you do, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. It just, you, you can't actually know where it's coming from or where it's going. You just know it. But it says panuma. And then it says, so it is with everyone who is born of the panuma, spirit. And so you're asking yourself, so when does it happen? How do I get into that line? How can I be re- re- reborn? How can I be born again? How can I be regenerated? This is completely a work of the Spirit. The panuma, just like when, whenever he chooses, blows into the heart of a person and regenerates them. And all of a sudden, they understand the gospel. They understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to some degree. And they want to believe. They don't ever not want to believe. They want to believe. They want to trust. They want to have new affections. They want to do what Jesus wants. And so you're asking yourself, well, then how can I have that then? And that's, that's a good question. But here's the better question, I think, for us all. Because how can I have that is, is the Deuteronomy 29, 29. Those things belong to the Lord. We can't understand it. You'll... You'll kill yourself trying to figure that out. You, you won't ever know. The better question is not how can I have that happen to me, but instead, what's keeping you from trusting Christ right now? Just answer that. What's keeping me from trusting Christ right now? You've heard the gospel. Believe right now. Trust him right now. If you're faintly, remotely, even contemplating trusting Christ, it's probably already happened. So that's not the question to ask as much as it is, What's keeping you from trusting him right now? But the third thing that we can see here is this. Um, The third thing regarding the note on regeneration is that the Holy Spirit is the decisive instigator of regeneration. He's the decisive instigator. He's the one that causes it. So that has two applications for you right now, wherever you are. Non-Christian or someone who doesn't know, or you're on the fence, or you got roped into here because you're going out to lunch with somebody afterwards, whatever. Uh, they promised you, you know, Taco Bell, or I mean, whatever, something good maybe. Like, you're thinking to yourself, okay, I got roped in, but I'm kind of listening right now. The question is, not are you regenerated, but what's keeping you from trusting Christ? For the Christian, that's not just kind of like, oh yeah, I've already heard that story. What's the next point so I can maybe think it applies to me? Listen, for the Christian... The Holy Spirit regenerated you sometime when you were not looking for him. You wanted nothing to do with him. Romans 5, 8. We were enemies of him. And yet out of his love and his mercy and his grace, he came and regenerated your heart and saved you in that moment. The only right response then is worship, more affections, more awe, more. I can't believe that he would do that for me. This is our only right response. When, we, when we're reminded of the Spirit's work in our lives, that should only drive us then to say, I can't believe what he did. I can't believe that he would save me. The Spirit came. I don't know how he happens. I didn't see him come, but I can see the effects. Just like the wind blows, we can see its effects. I can see the effects. I look back over the last year, three years, six years, or whatever, how long he's been saved, and I can see the effects of that. The things I wanted to do and that I used to do, I don't want to. Or they're a lesser degree because he's given me a desire to kill those things. And I want to tell people. Like, you ever been around somebody that's just got saved? You ever been around when they first get saved? Like, they're all crazy and super hyped up and they want everybody to know. They don't know the rules yet. 
Like, you're not supposed to do that, which we're supposed to. Like, like I got saved. I got to tell everybody. Like, knocking on, knocking on. Hey, let me tell you. Like, it's a bank. You can't go in. There. Like, they're just so excited. Like, you need to know Christ. I just got saved. This is amazing. I don't have to go to hell. God's forgiven everything. This is exactly what we're talking about. Like, he has come in, and you can look at the effects, and you can say, look at all the things he's done for me. I can't get over what he's done. That's the right response. When you think about the Holy Spirit's work in your heart, it's not just a ho-hum, yeah, I remember that. I've moved on to better things. We don't move away from this amazing truth that's been given to you, that the Holy Spirit regenerated you. And if you're not in Christ, maybe he is right now. Maybe right now you're feeling faith in Christ and what he's done on the cross. It's beautiful. So our only right response is worship. Now, this next section is where it just gets awesome. Because Jesus has kind of been messing with him a little bit. I mean, you got to be born again. He had, I mean, Jesus had to know when you look at someone who's never heard this before and say, Hey, Nicodemus, I want you to hop in mom's womb and get born again. And he's like, What? And so he's going to kind of, I think he's going to kind of mess with him again. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And so remember, Nicodemus was, you know, someone who was very familiar with the Old Testament. He was a Pharisee, likely had large portions of the Old Testament memorized, large portions of the Old Testament memorized. And so Jesus is saying all these, they were, they were thought of as knowing the the people that really knew God and knew what God expected and knew God's statutes and knew God's word. And so He's asking all these questions like, how can these things be then? I don't understand. And Jesus kind of jabs him a little bit right here in verse 10. It says, Jesus answered him, aren't you the teacher of Israel? Do you, you don't understand these things? Like, aren't you supposed to be the Bible guy? Aren't you supposed to understand these things? Just kind of messing with him a little bit. Um, again, maybe not, you know, being mean, but I think still trying to like get him to think. Talk to him about being born again. Telling him, aren't you supposed to be the Bible guy? Aren't you supposed to understand this? And then truly, truly, again, always pay attention. I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. So Jesus is still pointing out saying, look at the spirit. Look at how he moves. Look at what's being bared witness about. Look at the things that have happened. Look at the sign that I did at the wedding at Cana. Still pointing out, pointing out. But verse 13 is this huge transition, like, there is a major turn at verse 13 that happens. And it says, um, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? How can you believe if I tell you these heavenly things? And so he's pointing it out. He's helping him see that there's all kinds of things out there. But all of a sudden at verse 13, it makes this huge shift. Instead of looking out, instead of looking at signs, instead of trying to find witnesses, instead of thinking about the wind and the Holy Spirit and what he's done. Verse 13, and, and he's so confused and he's not understanding. He looks right at Nicodemus. This is the, look right at me right here, Nicodemus. Don't miss this. Quit looking around. It's right here. It's right in front of you. Verse 13 is that shift where he says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended. No one goes to heaven except for the one who has descended from heaven. And he says, it's almost like he's saying, the son of man. You don't have to look around anymore. You don't have to try to look at the witnesses and the signs and figure out the regeneration and the spirit and look at anything. It's right here in front of you. In other words, 
Look right here. You want to know Christ? You want to know God? You want to know holiness? You want to pursue knowing how to go to heaven? Look at me. Follow me. Watch me. Watch what I'm going to do. Don't take your eyes off me. Stay with me the whole time. And then you will receive heaven. You will be born again. It's right here. No reason to look elsewhere anymore. The Son of Man has come and the Son of Man is right in front of you. He turns it right there. And then finally, in his graciousness, I mean, he's just been confusing him and throwing him about being born again and talking about, aren't you supposed to be the Bible guy? And finally, I mean, in his graciousness, in his mercy, Jesus is going to speak straight to Nicodemus with something he can understand. Remember, Nicodemus knew the Old Testament. He knew it well. And so Jesus is going to look at him and finally say, I'm him now. I'm going to reference the Old Testament for you, Nicodemus. And I'm going to help you understand the gospel, my death, burial, and resurrection. And I'm going to connect it to Numbers 21. And you're going to understand that story in Numbers 21 is about me. And so you keep watching me and you're going to see it happen. Now, I'm assuming that none of us read up on Numbers 21 this morning before we came. So I'm thinking that we're probably all going to need to kind of look back at Numbers 21 just to get an idea. So let's read what Jesus says in verse 14. And I mean, it is so, so good. I'm, I'm just praying that I don't mess it up and get tongue tied because what Jesus does here is unbelievable. It's so beautiful. Let's read the verse 14. And as Moses, so he knew about Moses, he knew about the Old Testament. And as, as Moses lifted up the servant, the serpent, I'm sorry, in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. And so he's referring to the cross. So let's read Numbers 21. Um, if you don't have an idea, any idea where Numbers 21 is, just go back to the very beginning. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's the fourth book in the very beginning. Um, and it's chapter 21. All those other books are kind of long. Um, but Numbers chapter 21. It's not going to help you, but it's on page 154 in my Bible. Um, but <laughs> you can look at Numbers 21 starting at verse 4. And Jesus, in his graciousness, is going to help them under, help Nicodemus understand what he's talking about, about regeneration and trusting Christ. It starts at verse four. And listen, it is crazy. It's insane that Jesus uses this story because he talks about a serpent. Look at verse four. From Mount Or, they set out. Now, he's talking about the Israelites. This is them right before or right after they were slaves in Egypt and they're leaving and they're finally coming back to the promised land. And they are just over the top whiny babies, over the top whiny babies. But Let's not, you know, be mean to them. You and I would be over the top whiny babies just like them. We would, we're no different. The whole point of this is just as we look back to say, oh, that's me. So here it is in verse four. From Mount Or, they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. I get to go to the promised land, but I'm so tired of walking. We get to go to heaven, but oh, it's so bad. The whole time I have to live on this tiny little slice of 70 years. It's so awful. I get heaven forever and ever, but I'm impatient on the way. This is kind of the same idea here that there happened. And the people spoke against God, against Moses saying, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? I mean, you were slaves. You want to go back to being slaves in Egypt? You were bound in chains and told what to do the whole time. You had no freedom whatsoever. And you're, you're free now. And you're complaining. It's the same idea. You were slaves to sin. And now you're free and we're complaining. We, we're totally free in Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin. Same idea. Um, 
And they're, they're grumbling like we want to go back to Egypt and be slaves again. No, you don't. And look at this. For there is no food and there's no water. And we lo- there was food and water because look at this. And we loathe this worthless food. I have nothing to eat except that. And I hate it. Like my three-year-old does that. Um, and she just wants popsicles. But we can't just live on popsicles, right? We've got to have some vitamins and greens in there. And we loathe this worthless food as if God doesn't know how to take care of me and give me food that's good. And then the Lord had enough. This is, this is where it gets crazy. Look what God does. They just come out of nowhere. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of people, of, the many of people of Israel died. That's it. Like, that's terrible. Like, you're going to have nightmares tonight. Congratulations. Um, it's awful. Like, can you imagine? God just had enough, and he said, serpents, go bite them and die. Like, that would be awful. I said, so let's pray. Like, that would be the worst sermon. But here, that's not what happens. Verse 7, there's, there's actually something that gets better. Remember, this is all Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus knows this whole story. because just like Moses lifted up, and I should be so... Nicodemus had this full story and understood it completely. He remembers, oh yeah, the serpent's coming. That's awful. Um, And he says, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people and then they died. And then the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord against you. And then pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So there's an acknowledgement that they had it. Now, the only people that died are the ones that had been bitten. The only people that died were the only ones that had been bitten. And so we're relating that to us, which means if you have been a part of this biting, then you will die. So if you have been a part of the fall of man, if you have felt the sting of the serpent, the curse, then you are going to die. That's every single person ever. So he's pointing back to this particular story saying it is the whole story of the Bible. We fell at the, at the garden and now we need to be, there's repentance that happens and we should be saved by something. Look what saves them though. This is where it just gets astonishing what they're saved by. So Moses prayed for the people and this is how you can be saved. The Lord said to Moses, okay, you want to be saved? I mean, astonished. Look at this. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and put it up in the air. And everyone who, that's been bitten, everybody that's a product of that curse, that's been part of, part of the fall, which is all of us. Um, when he sees it, he shall live. So if you look at the serpent, if you've been bit, you'll live. If you don't look at the serpent, you won't live. And Jesus, as he's talking to, talking to Nicodemus, says, just like if you look at the serpent, when he's lifted up, you'll live. If you look unto me, you'll live. Well, this is where it just gets astounding. Because Jesus is equating and the analogy himself to the serpent. We know in Genesis 3, that's not a good thing, right? The serpent is the one that causes the whole fall of man. Why does Jesus, why didn't he say, make a lamb and look at the lamb. And if you look at the lamb, then you'll live. But he says serpent, which is the part I want to really communicate because it's the most unbelievable, unbelievable, beautiful truth. There's a, a verse in 1 Peter that says, Cursed is the man who hangs on the tree. And so in this text, Jesus is pointing to Nicodemus and say, the curse that is on every man, if you look at the, cur- the thing that's cursed, then you will be free. If you look unto Christ, who is the one that has taken all of the curse on him away from you and put on him, you'll be saved. 
Look unto him, the one who has been cursed for you and the cursing has been lifted off of you and put on him and that's how you'll be saved. And so Nicodemus is starting to put all this together. I mean, this is, this is earth shattering. It's not rules. It's not what I do. It's all, look at Christ and I'll understand how to be saved. Now, I wanted to try to highlight for us a little bit about what this had, the special part about this, the serpent and looking unto Christ. There's a few things that we have to understand. The first is that it's, um, the, the curse is representative of what Christ takes on. And because of that, now Jesus is showing Nicodemus that he's the son of man. He's the source of rescue. He's the one that takes on the curse for us because Jesus is equal with the snake in the analogy. The one that takes the curse from us. He gives us eternal life and that he's the one that has been crucified for us in our behalf. And so he says, just like the man must be looked up, what you need to do, if you look right there at Numbers chapter 21, verse 9, where was it? Numbers chapter 21, verse 9, it says, So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would, and he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Look unto Christ and you will live, is what, Moses, or is what Jesus tells Nicodemus. And so I wanted to read to us a little bit of an explanation of what it means to look at Christ. This is from Charles Spurgeon. He got saved by... Um, about a hundred years ago, he was in England. He was a preacher. He was about 15 years old. He's called the Prince of Preachers. He's ridiculous. Like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people got saved under his preaching ministry. And he didn't, he didn't have one of these things. Like people gathered around and he just had this loud booming voice and people got saved. But before he got saved in England, he was, there was a snowstorm and he was walking to church and the snowstorm hit. And when it happened, um, he couldn't go any further and he stepped into this tiny little Methodist church. And he says, he says this, Sometimes I think I might have been in darkness and in despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God and sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning in South Carolina. That just doesn't ring true with us. Like snowstorms don't seem good to us, but it's because he got saved. It was this idea of looking. Somebody preached on this verse about looking and it transformed his life, which is what I want us to understand. Look, what does it mean to look then unto Christ? He says, I was going down. On the Sunday morning, I came across this primitive Methodist chapel. Um, There's only about a dozen or 15 people in there. The minister came that morning, didn't even come that morning, morning because it, there was so much snow. One of the deacons got up. He says he's a really thin, kind of wiry man. Um, he maybe had been a shoot maker or a tailor, something of that sort. And he just got up and he delivered the message to 12 people, which the 15-year-old Spurgeon kind of hopped in and sat down and listened. And he preached one particular text from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. It says, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And he, Spurgeon says that he didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. So we're going to hear some of the things that he said. Now, it's going to sound like somebody from South Carolina is pronouncing this, but you have to kind of picture it also with an English accent. So I don't know what that sounds like, but I would love to hear it. Um, he says this, um, he talks about the look. The preacher began, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It, it says, look, now looking, don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand years to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. So this is what he's telling you. Look unto the serpent and you'll be saved. Look. What does it mean then to look? Because I'm looking. That's all that requires. And he talks about it a little more. But then the text says, look unto me. 
Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it ain't no use looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to the Father. You should look to him by and by, but not now. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you are waiting on the Holy Spirit's work. You don't have business yet with him. You will, but right now, look unto Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the man followed up his text saying, look unto me as you're looking at Christ. Christ is saying, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and I'm buried. Look unto me, I'm going to rise again. Look unto me and I'll ascend to heaven. Look unto me and I'm sitting at the right hand of the Father. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. So now we understand looking means gazing into the depths of the gospel and being so entranced and enamored at what Christ has done for us, we can't believe it. And it captivates our heart. And all we want to do as we look is trust, believe. And he says this a little bit more. He gone unto 10, Spurgeon says, he gone unto about 10 minutes and managed to spin this out for 10 minutes. Um, and he looked at me in the gallery and he dare say that there was not very many strangers. He fixed his eyes right on me. 12 to 15 people, Spurgeon says, he looks right on me and he says, young man, you look miserable. And Spurgeon says, well, I did feel miserable and I didn't think it was accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit right at you because of your personal appearance. Um, But the blow struck very strong. He says it struck right home. And then he looked at me, he says, you will always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death. If you don't obey this text, you must obey it now or so that you can be saved. And then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist would do. So that's a little jab at the primitive Methodist. Apparently did lots of shouting. Um, and that wasn't common. But he jabbed him at the little primitive Methodist. He goes, young man, look to Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and then you will live. I saw, Spurgeon says, I saw it once. The way of salvation. I saw it at once. I know nothing about, about what this man said. Um, I didn't take much notice of anything else that he had said. I was so possessed with that one thought. And then he references this John three fourteen, Like the brazen serpent was lifted up. The people looked and were healed. And so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. And I looked upon him and my, I was saved. And then he quotes this hymn, but he says, Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing womb supply redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. So when we talk about look, it means bank everything on the gospel. Bank everything on it. And so he explains right here in verse 15. He says that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Whoever trusts, John three thirty six, a little bit later in the chapter, Whoever whoever believes in the Son of Man has eternal life. Whoever does not shall not see eternal life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And finally, the most quoted, the most known, the most memorized verse ever, John 3, 16. All of this leads right up to that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever whoever believes in him should not perish. And if if you look on him, you will have eternal life. So the fourth thing is this, that belief or faith in Christ's gospel, the death, bell, and resurrection, looking unto that and banking all your hope into it, that comes from regeneration. And so the question is not, are you regenerated? I mean, maybe that's the question, but the better question is, what's keeping you from trusting Christ right now? What's keeping you from looking and banking everything on him? This is pretty awesome. If you've ever heard of Paul Harvey, he always gave us the rest of the story. 
And so John reaches forward and employs his little Paul Harvey skills down into this book of John. And in John 19, he gives us one verse, but the rest of the story on Nicodemus. When he looked right at him, he said, look at me, Nicodemus. Watch me. Watch what I do. Don't take your eyes off me. Keep your eyes here. Watch what I'm going to do. And if you will, you will achieve eternal life. Nicodemus did that, I think. Look at verse uh, chapter 19. Chapter 19, we're going to start at 38. This is after Jesus had died on the cross. This is after all that. I think Nicodemus did follow him around, did keep his eyes on him, did watch him. And look at this. It says in verse 38, this is right after he's being buried. After those things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. So Jesus hasn't even been resurrected yet. Um, Two days later. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and he took the body away. And then look at this. John just wanted to make sure. Hey, remember that guy? He did keep his eyes. He looked upon him and banked everything. Right here. Nicodemus, also, who earlier come to Jesus by night, came, look what he's doing, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds in weight. And then he just keeps going. That's all he gives us, but that's all we need. He looked upon him. He watched him and he understood. That's his death for me. And he believed in his resurrection. He believed that he's going to happen. And the first thing that happened to his heart after he had been regenerated, after it had been made pure, after that, all that had happened, all he wanted to do was become a servant of Christ. And in this capacity, it was, I'm going to bring aloes for his body. I just want to be a servant of Christ however I can. The rest of the story is, you look unto Christ. Look unto the Son of Man. Don't take your eyes off of him. Keep him focused on him. Keep seeing what he's doing. Reminding yourself of what he's done. And keep walking through life with your eyes fixed on him. Look unto him and what he's done for you. And you will be saved. So I think the right response for us is easy. It's really easy. If you don't know Christ, trust him right now. If you do know Christ, you have been regenerated. Let's all stand and just glory in this amazing forgiveness, this amazing salvation that's been given to us, the unbelievable purity that's been given to us. Let's bask in the glory of being saved by Jesus and getting to, for all eternity, look upon the lover of our souls. We're going to have an opportunity to do that right now through music. And then you have an opportunity as you go to do that through your life. As you serve others and care for them and meet their needs and love your family and love your wife. And you'll come back and you'll have an opportunity to gather together and we'll sing out and worship him with our lives. And we'll go out and we'll worship him with our lives. And we'll continue to do that looking unto Christ and growing in this amazing gift that he's given to us. I'm going to pray and however God's wired you or however God's leading you right now, just be obedient to it. If you want to talk to me, I'll be right back there in the back. I'd love to talk to you about Jesus, how to trust Christ this morning. Otherwise, just... Stand and give him the glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We, we confess that there's times where it's not on the forefront of our minds, but we know it should be. Forgive, forgive us of those times. But Lord, would you now sweep into our hearts and renew our deep affections for Jesus. And as we worship, Lord, would we worship with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. And I pray for anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, God, that you would regenerate him right now give them the gift of faith and that they would put their faith in Christ and believe that that was their death on the cross and that they now can have life in you, eternal, be made pure.
be made holy forever. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.